Welcome, everybody, to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is the Donner Party. When you mention the Donner Party, most people only think of one thing, cannibalism. And yes, it's true that occurred, but there's a lot more to their story. For those of you who have never heard of the Donner Party, they were a group of immigrants moving to California in 1846. They got stuck in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California, near Lake Tahoe, in winter. Only about half of the Donner Party survived the winter of 1846 to 1847. First, let's set the scene of what was going on in the spring of 1846 when this whole saga began. In 1846, Russia still owned a large portion of North America. It wasn't until 1867 that the U.S. purchased that territory, which is now the state of Alaska. In 1846, Hawaii was still a separate country. Until 1893, it was still a kingdom. That's always a good trivia question. Where is the only royal palace in the United States? And the answer is Iolani Palace in Honolulu. In 1846, Ireland was in the second year of its horrendous potato famine. If you're interested, I did a podcast episode on that tragic event. In 1846, Canada was not yet an independent country. The different provinces of Canada were considered British North America. The Dominion of Canada was officially born on July 1, 1867, and that's why July 1 is their national holiday known as Canada Day. What was going on in the U.S. in 1846? When they rang the Liberty Bell for George Washington's birthday on February 22, 1846, the Liberty Bell literally cracked. It has not been rung since. The Pacific Northwest of the U.S. was called the Oregon Country at that time and was being jointly administered by the U.S. and Britain. It's kind of a complicated situation, which I'll explain in a little bit. More important to today's episode is the fact that all of California, Nevada, Utah, and parts of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming still belong to Mexico. When people tell the story of the Donner Party, most people don't consider the bizarre fact that they, along with other wagon trains, were headed to a foreign country at that time. And I say it's bizarre because they weren't intending to move to Mexico and become Mexican citizens. They wanted to settle in California to eventually make it part of the United States. Stories had circulated in the U.S. about the incredible climate, beauty, and agricultural opportunities in California. It didn't matter that California was a province of Mexico. These were the days of manifest destiny. In case you're not familiar with that term, it was coined in 1845 by newspaper editor John O'Sullivan when he wrote that it was Americans' manifest destiny to overspread the continent allotted by Providence for the free development of our yearly multiplying millions. Americans wanted the U.S. to spread from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It didn't matter who was there, we wanted that land. And to be fair to the U.S. about taking so much land from Mexico, the Spanish and the Mexicans didn't ask the Native Americans' permission to take any of that same land. On May 13, 1846, the U.S. declared war against Mexico. That war ended when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed on February 2, 1848. The U.S. gained California along with a lot of other territory. But that was in the future. When the Donner Party planned to move to California, it was still part of Mexico. The Donner Party, and most Americans moving to California at that time, had one destination in mind, Sutter's Fort. John Sutter was a Swiss immigrant. In 1839, Sutter ended up in a province of the country of Mexico called Alta, California, what we think of as California today. It was called Alta, California to distinguish it from Baja, California. Baja, California is the long peninsula in Mexico between the Gulf of California and the Pacific Ocean. Sutter became a Mexican citizen and acquired a large expanse of land in the Sacramento Valley. It was mostly an agricultural enterprise with cattle, sheep, and crops. The home base was an area called Sutter's Fort. Today, in the middle of Sacramento, which is the capital of the state of California, you can find Sutter's Fort State Historic Park. In 1846, Americans were clustering in the areas near Sutter's Fort. 
Time for an extremely short geography lesson. Most of California has two mountain ranges. There are the smaller Pacific Coast Ranges, which are obviously near the ocean, and on the border with Nevada, there are the enormous Sierra Nevada Mountains. In between these mountain ranges is an enormous central valley, which is approximately 450 miles or 725 kilometers long. Even though the Central Valley is one long continuous valley, it actually goes by two names. The northern half of the Central Valley is called the Sacramento Valley, and the southern half is called the San Joaquin Valley. The Sacramento Valley was the destination of the Donner Party, as well as all of the other emigrants heading to California in 1846. This is where the wonderful farmland was located. In the heart of the Sacramento Valley is where Sutter's Fort was located. But to get to the Sacramento Valley, all emigrants from the east had to cross the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The Sierra Nevada Range goes for approximately 400 miles or 640 kilometers, separating the Central Valley of California from the Great Basin in Nevada. I'll be describing the Great Basin later on. The north-south length of the mountain range did not concern emigrants like the Donner Party. They were more worried about the height and width of these mountains. The width, meaning measuring from east to west of the Sierra Nevadas, varies from about 50 to 80 miles or 80 to 130 kilometers. Imagine trying to walk across such distances in mountain terrain and in the snow. As for elevation, the parts of the Sierras we will be talking about in this episode range from about 7,000 to 9,000 feet or 2,100 to 2,700 meters. Fun fact, the highest point in the contiguous United States, meaning the 48 states that do not include Alaska and Hawaii, is Mount Whitney in the Sierra Nevadas in California, with a height of 14,505 feet or 4,421 meters. So how were the members of the Donner Party going to get to California in 1846? There were no railroads. The first transcontinental railroad would not be built until 1869, another 23 years in the future. Most emigrants went by wagon train, mostly following the Oregon Trail. I know what you're thinking. Why is he talking about the Oregon Trail? I thought the Donner Party was heading to California, not Oregon. That's true. But the first half of the California Trail was comprised of the Oregon Trail. They were the same trail until they diverged in what is now the state of Idaho at the junction where the Raft River flows into the Snake River. At that point, people going to Oregon would continue going west, and people going to California would start heading southwest. That's where people would leave the Oregon Trail, and that was essentially the start of the California Trail. Before Americans started large-scale emigration to California, they were first going to Oregon. And when I say Oregon, I don't mean just the area which is now the state of Oregon. What was called the Oregon Country, or the Oregon Territory, was a huge region in the Pacific Northwest, roughly defined as everything north of California, all the way to Alaska, between the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific Ocean. By the early 1840s, this vast area was jointly governed by America and the United Kingdom. Finally, in 1846, the U.S. and Britain signed an agreement whereby they split the Oregon country at the 49th parallel, except all of Vancouver Island was given to the British. The 49th parallel is still the border today between the Canadian provinces of British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba on the north side, and the states of Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, and Minnesota on the south side. The Oregon Treaty between the UK and the US was signed on June 15, 1846. This meant that when the Donner Party began their journey in April 1846, the Oregon country was still jointly controlled by the U.S. and Britain. Since the first half of the trail to California was the Oregon Trail, let me first describe that route. The starting point for the Oregon Trail was Independence, Missouri. In 1846, Missouri was already a state. It had been a state for 25 years. Okay, I've got to take a little side trip here. 
There was a big fight in 1820 about Missouri becoming a state. This was during the insane time in our history when the United States had slavery. To keep the country from breaking apart, the leaders of the U.S. throughout the first half of the 1800s tried to keep an equal number of free states and slave states. The problem in 1820 was Missouri was applying to enter the U.S. as a slave state, and there was no corresponding territory that was ready to be admitted as a free state. The solution? Make Maine its own state. Up until that time, Maine had been part of Massachusetts. The people of Maine had wanted to become an independent state for a long time. The current states of Maine and Massachusetts don't even border each other. There's a little sliver of New Hampshire that separates Maine from Massachusetts. So it's weird that there were ever one state. Anyway, Maine was admitted as the 23rd state on March 15, 1820 as a free state. Missouri was admitted into the Union as a slave state on August 10, 1821. And now for something very bizarre about the Missouri state flag. It has three horizontal stripes of red, white, and blue. And in the middle is the Missouri state seal, which has 24 stars because Missouri was the 24th state in the Union. Nothing bizarre yet, right? But also in the state seal, that's right in the middle of the flag, is the Roman numeral for the year 1820. As I just told you, Missouri was admitted as a state on August 10, 1821. So why does the state seal have the year 1820 and Roman numerals? Well, according to the official website of Missouri Courts, Missouri's official state seal, adopted by the state legislature in January 1822, reflects the date of 1820. This is the year when Missouri's first constitution was adopted and the year Missouri began functioning as though it were a state, even though it officially was not recognized as such until the following year. I can't help it. I love these oddities of history. All right, let's get back to the Oregon Trail. When it left Independence, Missouri, the Oregon Trail went through territories of the United States, which later became the states of Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, and Oregon. You may wonder why a trail was needed at all. Why couldn't people just hitch up their wagons and go any route they wanted to get to Oregon? The reason is geography. The Oregon Trail followed rivers so the emigrants would have fresh water. In particular, the Oregon Trail followed the Platte, the North Platte, the Snake, and the Columbia Rivers. The water was not only necessary for the people, but for the animals as well. So the rivers explained a large segment of the Oregon Trail. But what about when they were not following rivers? Once these travelers reached the Rocky Mountains, they better have known a trail which actually went through that giant mountain range. Nowadays, it's easy to go through the Rocky Mountains because there are several interstate highways that have bridges and tunnels and nicely paved roads. But in the days of covered wagons, you had to make sure that you were going through specific passes through the mountains. It's one thing to go through the Rocky Mountains on foot or even a horse. It's a lot harder to get a wagon or many wagons through this mountain range. These people were not taking covered wagons for creature comforts. The wagons contained the necessities of life, including, but not limited to, food, containers of water, guns and ammunition for protection, bedding, cooking utensils, changes of clothes. This was a long and arduous route. According to the Bureau of Land Management of the United States government, the Oregon Trail was 2,170 miles or 3,492 kilometers from western Missouri to the Willamette Valley in Oregon. By the way, the trail did not look like any kind of modern road. Obviously, there was no pavement, but it did not even look like a dirt road. There were only parallel ruts from wagon wheels. The Oregon Trail had its heyday for about 20 years between 1840 and 1860. We don't have any definitive figures, but it is estimated that approximately 300,000 people traveled the Oregon and California trails during that time period. Starting in the spring of 1861, the Civil War broke out and it greatly curtailed the number of people heading to Oregon and California. 
Four years after the Civil War ended, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, and it was much easier to get to the West Coast. The Oregon Trail was often deadly. The most dreaded hazard was cholera. In the mid-1800s, cholera was a major killer in America. People often died on the trail from a lack of water when they got away from the rivers and could not find any fresh water. Often the water sources that they had been told about had dried up in the summer heat. Oxen were the main animals that pulled the wagons and they drank a lot of water. When the oxen died of thirst, the emigrants were in big trouble because now they could not bring all of their supplies. Of course, running out of food was another peril. People often thought that they were going to be able to live off the land. It was a lot harder than they imagined. It took approximately five to six months to reach Oregon or California. On a good day, wagon trains only covered 10 to 20 miles. Think about someplace that's only 10 miles from your home. Imagine it taking an entire day to get there. Most people walked. I know that's not what you see in the movies with people riding in the covered wagons, but when you were worrying about the oxen who were pulling your wagon, possibly dying, you were trying to make the job of these oxen as easy as possible. Having the people walk alongside the wagon meant less weight to be pulled by the animals. Of course, it wasn't that great to ride in the wagon. There was no such thing as shock absorbers. The wheels were made out of solid wood and sometimes were iron rimmed. There was no rubber. So imagine how incredibly jarring the ride was with solid wooden or iron wheels going along on a very uneven terrain. It might have been more pleasant to simply walk. The wagons certainly varied but typically they were about 10 to 12 feet long and about four feet wide. Pieces of wood arched over the wagons to support the canvas covering. Now it's time to talk about the California Trail. It was the same as the Oregon Trail until they reached that point in modern day Idaho where the Raft River flows into the Snake River. That's where people going to California turn southwest. The emigrants on the California Trail endured the same hardships I just outlined for the Oregon Trail, except worse. That's because when they turned south off of the Oregon Trail, they had to cross the Great Basin. That's an enormous area of approximately 200,000 square miles or 520,000 square kilometers, which covers most of the present state of Nevada, a large portion of Utah, as well as sections of California, Idaho, and Oregon. To get to California, people travel through the Great Basin, which was mostly desert. You better have brought enough food and more importantly, water. If you've ever driven across Nevada, you know how incredibly barren it is. It's not so bad today on Interstate 80. Your main concern is that your car doesn't break down. Imagine walking through that desert. I don't know how these people did it. Of course, once you cross the desert of the Great Basin, you then had to get through the Sierra Nevada mountains. These are tall, rugged peaks and you better get there before the snow sets in. This brings us to the main problem of the Donner Party, timing. As I just explained, you had to get to the Sierra Nevada mountains in the eastern part of Northern California before winter. I know what you're thinking. Just start the journey very early in the year. The problem is you cannot leave Missouri too early, meaning the weather had to be right when you left Missouri for you to start your trip. You had to wait until the spring rains had stopped in the Great Plains. Otherwise, it was a sea of mud and you could not get wagons through all of that mud. So there was a sweet spot of when immigrants could leave. The trip would take approximately five to six months. So you wanted to leave Missouri in late April, so you would be crossing the Sierra Nevada mountains in September. As you can probably guess, the Donner Party got a late start. I'll explain that later because that wasn't their biggest mistake. Their biggest problem was listening to a man named Lansford Hastings and taking his route known as the Hastings Cutoff. Before I get to the journey, let's discuss who was in the Donner Party. We now remember it simply as the Donner Party, but in the 1800s, 
it was often called the Donner Reed Party. And for any of you fans of old movies, I did not say Donna Reed, the actress who starred in It's a Wonderful Life and From Here to Eternity, as well as having her own TV show in the late 50s and early 60s. No, I'm talking about two last names, the Donners and the Reeds. I'm just going to refer to the group as the Donner Party since that's how they are generally known today. The families of George Donner, his brother Jacob Donner, and James Frazier Reed began their journey when they left Springfield, Illinois on April 16, 1846. And if that city sounds familiar, it's because it's the capital of Illinois and the adopted hometown of our greatest president, Abraham Lincoln. If you ever visit Springfield, Illinois, you will find the tomb where Lincoln is buried with his wife and three of his four sons. But much more interesting is the Lincoln House, which still exists in Springfield. It's where he and his family actually lived. It is so cool. You can tour the house, and it essentially looks like it did when Lincoln left Springfield to go to Washington to be inaugurated as president. I highly recommend it. Besides all of the hazards that these emigrants faced when they were setting off for the West Coast, there was also the heartbreak of saying goodbye to any family and friends that they were leaving behind. Until recently, this was the case for all people who were permanently moving. I've always thought about how hard it had to have been for my grandparents when they left Italy to sail for America in 1905 for my grandfather and 1913 for my grandmother. I can't imagine what it was like saying goodbye to your parents as well as your siblings and all of your friends and getting on a boat for a new country that you've never seen and you don't speak the language. And the situation for the Donner Party, as well as my grandparents and countless others who have emigrated to distant lands, was knowing that you would never see these people again. Maybe you could correspond in letters, but you would never again hold them or hear their voices. When the Donner Party left Springfield, Illinois, they were first heading for Independence, Missouri. That was the main jumping off point for people going to Oregon and California. In Independence, people loaded up on supplies for the hazardous journey ahead. Also in Independence, people formed wagon trains. There was no set amount as to how many wagons would form a particular train. We don't have accurate figures, but it is estimated that there were approximately 7,000 wagons that set off from Missouri to Oregon and California in 1846. Instead of leaving Missouri in late April, the Donner Party's wagon train didn't leave until May 12, 1846. At this point, the Donner Party was part of a much larger wagon train following the Oregon Trail. Some of the people would go on to Oregon and some to California. After a few days, the Donner Party's wagon train met some horsemen who were spreading the news that the U.S. was now at war with Mexico. War had been declared on May 13, 1846, the day after the Donner Party's wagon train had left Independence. Amazingly, this did not deter any of the people in this wagon train. Think about this. You just received news that your country is at war with Mexico and you are heading to California, which is a province of Mexico. Apparently, these people were not worried about getting caught in any military engagements. They should have been worried about getting to California and having the local, meaning Mexican, authorities treat them as enemies. On May 27, 1846, the wagon train reached the Big Blue River in what is now Kansas. It was swollen from heavy rains, so it could not be forded, meaning crossing the river at a shallow place. So they had to ferry each of the wagons across the Big Blue River. These are the kind of details that get passed over in history books. But imagine how much work it was to build a boat and to ferry all of the wagons along with all of the animals across the river. It took four whole days to do this. And remember, this was still considered the easy part of the trip. On June 27, the wagon train reached Fort Laramie at the confluence of the Laramie and North Platte Rivers in what is now the state of Wyoming. Today, you can visit Fort Laramie. It's a national historic site. It had originally been built in 1834 as a private fur trading fort. Those were the days when private individuals or companies sometimes built their own forts. 
In 1849, it became a military post belonging to the U.S. Army. That's when it actually became named Fort Laramie. It remained an Army post until 1890. When the Donner Party visited in 1846, it was actually known as Fort John and was still a private fort. Most history texts just refer to it always as Fort Laramie because that's how it became famous. Tens of thousands of emigrants heading towards Oregon and California stopped at Fort Laramie over the years. At Fort Laramie, the Donner Party chose to take a supposed shortcut. This would prove to be their biggest mistake and was the primary reason for almost half of their party dying on the way to California. If there's a villain in this story, it's a man named Lansford Hastings. In 1842, he traveled to California. He later published the Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. In his guide, he promoted a shorter route to California, which became known as the Hastings Cutoff. Here's why he's a villain. When he wrote the Emigrant's Guide, he had not actually taken the supposed shortcut known as the Hastings Cutoff. He didn't know if it was feasible or not. His negligence led to people dying. As we all learned in school, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. You can look at a map and draw a straight line from Independence, Missouri to Sutter's Fort in California. But geography doesn't work that way. What appears to be the shortest route on a map might not be practical because of the terrain. That was the case with the Hastings Cutoff. The regular California Trail took the Oregon Trail up until modern-day Idaho and then veered off to the southwest. This trail went north of the Great Salt Lake. Hastings had the brilliant idea of going south of the Great Salt Lake. He estimated that this would shorten the trip to California by about 350 miles or 560 kilometers. There was a reason why the traditional California Trail went north of the Great Salt Lake. It was to avoid two great obstacles, the Wasatch Mountain Range and the Great Salt Lake Desert, known to people in Utah today as the West Desert. By going south of the Great Salt Lake, the Hastings Cutoff would take the emigrants through those two horrible barriers, making the journey much more difficult and taking much more time. Were the people in the Donner Party foolish to take the Hastings Cutoff? Absolutely. And I'm not just saying this with hindsight. They were actually warned. Well, at least one person was warned. When they reached Fort Laramie, James Reed ran into an old friend of his named James Kleiman. He was on his way eastward from California. Kleiman had just taken the Hastings Cutoff. He told Reed not to go that way. Kleiman explained that it had been very difficult on horseback and that it would be practically impossible for wagons. Kleiman told Reed to take the regular route north of the Great Salt Lake. It would be much safer. But James Reed would not listen to his old friend. He wanted to take the purported shorter route, no matter how dangerous. We don't know if James Reed told the other members of the Donner Party about the warning he received from James Kleiman. But what we do know is that the Donner Party left the traditional California Trail and took the Hastings Cutoff south of the Great Salt Lake. On July 17, the wagon train, which included the Donner Party, was met by a lone horseman going in the opposite direction. This horseman carried a letter from Lansford Hastings addressed to any emigrants heading towards California. The letter said that Lansford Hastings would meet anybody who wanted to take his shortcut and that he would be at Fort Bridger and Hastings himself would escort them through his new trail. On July 20, the wagon train reached the Little Sandy River. This is where the Hastings Cutoff left the established Oregon and California trails. This is where the Donner Party headed out on their own. Up until now, they had been part of a much larger wagon train. This was the start of the actual Donner Party as a separate group. There were 20 wagons. They elected a captain. They chose George Donner as the captain. This is why it was called the Donner Party. About a week later, they reached Fort Bridger, where they thought they would meet Lansford Hastings. This was not a U.S. Army post. It wasn't even a fort of any kind. It was a tiny trading post run by a guy named Jim Bridger, consisting of two log cabins and a corral. Much to the chagrin of the Donner Party, 
Lansford Hastings was not at Fort Bridger. Hastings had left about a week earlier with another wagon train heading towards California. He left written instructions for anybody who arrived at Fort Bridger on how to proceed with the Hastings cutoff. On July 31, the Donner Party left Fort Bridger. The Donner Party consisted of the 20 wagons I mentioned, with nine families and 16 single men who were hired hands. There were a total of 87 people. When you hear about the losses of the Donner Party, they always start with this figure, the group of 87 people. For about a week or so, it seemed like they had made the right choice. The Hastings cutoff was working out. They were making good time and they had not run into any problems. But after about a week, things changed. On August 6, a really strange thing occurred. They found a handwritten note stuck in some sage along the trail. It was from Lansford Hastings. The note stated that the route ahead was impassable and that anybody reading this note should stay put and Hastings himself would come back and show them a different route. Think about how crazy this was. The lives of these people were on the line, and the man that encouraged them to go this new route simply left a handwritten note stuck in some sage. How about if the note had blown away, or the people of the Donner Party simply didn't see it? The 20 wagons stayed put, but James Reed went on ahead to find Lansford Hastings. After a few days, Reed found Hastings. Contrary to his promise in the handwritten note, he refused to go back to where the Donner Party was waiting. All Hastings was willing to do was to take James Reed up to a peak and point out the supposedly better route. Reed went back to the Donner Party and they went forward on the new route. The terrain was very rough. They were passing through the Wasatch Mountains. There were some days when they were only covering about two miles. It's hard to get wagons through areas that don't have an actual trail. Besides the difficulty of passing through mountains, they often had to cut through trees and bushes to create a trail that the wagons could get through. On August 22, they finally left the Wasatch Mountains and reached the Great Salt Lake. It was almost September and they still had more than 600 miles to go to reach Sutter's Fort. The idea was to reach the Sierra Nevadas by the beginning of September to avoid the snows. Things were not looking good. They continued following the tracks of the wagon train that Lansford Hastings was in. They eventually reached some springs with fresh water. They found another note there from Hastings. Can you imagine wandering in a wilderness and simply looking for handwritten notes from this guy? He gave them further directions. On August 30, they reached the Great Salt Lake Desert. They thought that they could cross in two days because that's what Hastings had told them. So they had enough water and fodder for only a couple of days. But in August, the heat turns part of the salt floor of the Great Salt Lake Desert soft. So their footsteps sunk into the soft crust. And worse, the wagon wheels sunk into the salt surface. After three days, the water ran out. It took either five or six full days to cross the 80-mile desert. Hastings had advised in his note that the desert was only 40 miles across. None of the people died of thirst, but many came close. What was alarming was the loss of 36 oxen while crossing the Great Salt Lake Desert. Without the oxen, there was no way to move those wagons. Several wagons had to be abandoned. Some of you might be wondering why they didn't turn back at this point. The simple answer is that they probably couldn't. Where would they go back to? Fort Bridger was the last outpost of so-called civilization, and that only consisted of a couple of cabins. It seemed simpler and safer to just go forward. But as they looked ahead, they could see snow on the crests of the mountains. On September 26, they reached the Humboldt River. This is where they connected with the original California trail that the other wagons had taken. If they had stayed with the original wagon train and just taken the traditional California trail north of the Great Salt Lake, they would have reached this point weeks earlier. But by taking the Hastings cutoff, they lost valuable time. And here's the worst part. Not only was the Hastings cutoff much more treacherous, 
it might have been longer in distance than the original California Trail. It was certainly much longer in time because of the rough terrain. It took the Donner Party 68 days to go through the Hastings Cutoff. The people from that wagon train that took the original route north of the Great Salt Lake took only 37 days to reach the same point on the Humboldt River. This was the main cause of the Donner Party getting caught in the Sierra Nevada mountains and being stuck there for the winter with all of the death and barbarism that I'll be describing in a little bit. At this point, they calculated that there were not enough provisions to last the entire group all the way to California. So two single men, Charles Stanton and William McCutcheon, agreed to go ahead to try to reach Sutter's Fort and come back with help. Two single men with horses could travel much faster than a wagon train. And what happened to our villain, Lansford Hastings? He made it to Sutter's Fort in early September with a train of about 80 wagons. At this point, all of the emigrants who had left Missouri for California had made it except for the Donner Party. And things continued to deteriorate. On October 5, a man named John Snyder and James Reed got into a physical fight. Reed stabbed Snyder and killed him. Was this murder? Manslaughter? Self-defense? These people were in the middle of nowhere. There were no courts. The majority decided it was murder. They considered hanging James Reed, but decided to banish him instead. He was sent off on his own. His wife and children stayed with the rest of the Donner Party. On October 7, an old man who could not walk all the way was booted out of the wagon he was riding in. Nobody else would take him in. He was simply left there to die. At some point, some Native Americans killed many of the Donner Party's oxen. On October 16, they reached the Truckee River. This was considered the entrance to the Sierra Nevadas. Remember I said that two single men had gone on ahead to get supplies? Well, on October 19, one of those guys, Charles Stanton, came back with seven mules and two Native American guides. The mules were loaded up with food. Stanton told the remaining Donner Party that he knew how to get through the mountains. They stayed where they were for a few days so the oxen could rest for the hard climb over the Sierra Nevadas. I do not speak Spanish, but according to Google Translate, Sierra Nevada means snowfall mountain range. If that's accurate, then they are appropriately named. The Sierras get a lot of snow. After a few days rest, they pushed on into the mountains. On October 31, they got as far as Truckee Lake and set up camp overnight. Unfortunately, overnight at Truckee Lake, it began to snow. They were too late. They missed their opportunity to get through the mountains. For those of you who live in snowy climates, you're probably thinking, what's the big deal? You can walk through snow. It might be unpleasant, but you can do it. Not snow like this. In the morning, the Donner Party tried to move as quickly as they could through the mountain pass, but they could not make it. There was already five feet or one and a half meters of snow on the ground. Try walking through that much snow. It's pretty much impossible. And you have to consider that they were trying to get their wagons through the pass because all of their equipment and supplies were in the wagons. They realized they were not going to make it through the pass and they headed back to Truckee Lake. If you don't live around mountains, you might not get the importance of a mountain pass. That term simply means a navigable route through a mountain range. In mountains as steep and rugged as the Sierra Nevadas, you have to go through a pass. You simply cannot climb over the top, I guess maybe unless you're a skilled mountain climber, which these people weren't. They were regular people. They were about 100 miles or 160 kilometers from their destination, Sutter's Fort. If they had reached Truckee Lake several days earlier, they might have made it. Some claim that the Donner Party missed their window of opportunity by only a single day, but that greatly overstates it. In matter of fact, I think it's completely wrong. As I explained earlier, going through the Sierra Nevadas from east to west is about 50 to 80 miles or 80 to 130 kilometers. Of course, they were not starting at the beginning because they were already as far as Truckee Lake. But even from Truckee Lake, 
it was going to be another 50 to 60 miles to get out of the mountains. They weren't doing that in one day. That's why I call BS on the claim that one more day of good weather would have saved them. At Truckee Lake, they built a winter camp. As they were building their winter camp, it snowed more and more. Eventually, the snowdrifts were over 20 feet or 6 meters deep. Altitude is very important for snow. I live in Los Angeles. We have a rainy season from November until the beginning of April and no precipitation at all from late April until Thanksgiving. But when it rains here in LA, it is snowing in the local mountains. On the weather reports, the meteorologists tell us that it will be raining in LA, but it will be snowing above a particular elevation. Usually that line where rain turns into snow is somewhere between 3,000 and 7,000 feet above sea level, depending upon how cold it is throughout Southern California. It provides odd but beautiful sights. It might be 65 in LA, but you can see snow on the mountains in the distance. I'm explaining this to you so you understand the difference in weather at Truckee Lake compared to Sutter's Fort. Truckee Lake is approximately 6,000 feet above sea level. Sutter's Fort is only about 30 feet above sea level. So it's a lot warmer at Sutter's Fort than high up in the Sierra Nevadas at Truckee Lake. Besides the cold creating snow, the elevation contributes to the amount of all types of precipitation. Simply put, it is often raining or snowing in the mountains, even if it's not raining down in the valleys. In California, the mountains receive a lot more rainfall, as well as snow, compared to the California lowlands. Why is that? Well, according to National Geographic, when an air mass moves from a low elevation to a high elevation, it expands and cools. This cool air cannot hold moisture as well as warm air. Cool air forms clouds, which drop rain and snow as it rises up a mountain. By the way, mountains also cause what is known as a rain shadow. Again, according to National Geographic, a rain shadow is a patch of land that has been forced to become a desert because mountain ranges blocked all plant-growing rainy weather. On one side of the mountain, wet weather systems drop rain and snow. On the other side of the mountain, the rain shadow side, all of that precipitation is blocked. This is what causes the deserts in Nevada because all of the moisture is released on the California side. A rain shadow from mountains is also why Seattle gets about 40 inches of rain per year, but Spokane in eastern Washington state only gets about 17 inches of rain per year. There was one member of the Donner Party that made it to Sutter's Fort. James Reed, the guy who was banished from the wagon train because he stabbed and killed that guy, made it all the way to Sutter's Fort by late October. When he reached Sutter's Fort, Reed asked for help to rescue his family and the rest of the Donner Party. The problem was that there were essentially no available men for a rescue party. Why was this? In the fall of 1846, most of the men had headed to Southern California to join the fight in the Mexican-American War. Remember that California was still officially part of Mexico at this time, but all of the people who had moved to California from the U.S. wanted to make this province into another American state. One of the men in the Donner Party at Truckee Lake kept a diary. He recorded that in November, it snowed for eight days without stopping. They built shelters which were extremely primitive small log cabins. When it stopped snowing, they tried twice more to get over the mountain pass, but they couldn't get through all that snow. By some point in December, all of the animals were dead. They tried to preserve the meat as best as they could. People started dying of malnutrition. In mid-December, it was decided that 15 or possibly 17, I've seen both figures, would try to make it through the mountains to Sutter's Fort to get help. Using the figure of 15 people, there were nine men, five women, and a boy of 12 years old. They made crude snowshoes out of the materials at hand. On December 16, they left the encampment at Truckee Lake. They carried enough food for six days. Nobody thought that the chances were very good. Because it was such a long shot, this group has become known as the Forlorn Hope. The homemade snowshoes worked and they got over the summit. But after six days, their food ran out, and they were starting to suffer from snow blindness. Charles Stanton became so weak 
that he told the others to go on without him. He simply sat down in the snow and smoked his pipe, and they left him. I find this particularly sad because Charles Stanton was a hero. He was one of the two guys that had gone on ahead to get help from Sutter's Fort before they reached the mountains. Stanton was the guy who came back with the two Native American guides and the seven mules carrying food. He could have stayed at Sutter's Fort, but instead he had come back for the rest of the party. Now he was one of the first to die. The remaining 14 people in the Forlorn Hope got lost. They were starving and desperate, so they decided to draw lots to kill one of their members and eat him or her. They did draw lots, but nobody had the heart to kill the man who drew the losing lot. They soon discovered that they did not have to kill anybody because members of the Forlorn Hope started to die of starvation. This is when they started eating human flesh. They cut up the remaining portions of the dead bodies to take with them. Somehow they labeled the meat from the bodies so nobody had to eat one of their relatives. Revived by eating the dead people, the remaining people of the Forlorn Hope decided to push on to Sutter's Fort. A few days later, they again ran out of food. One of the white members of the party proposed murdering the two Native Americans and eating them. One of the other white people told the Native Americans what was being proposed, and those two guys went off on their own. The two Native Americans were later found lying in the snow. It's unclear whether they were already dead or whether they were killed by one of the white Americans. Either way, the two Native Americans became food for the rest. I'm not going to go into details about how people were eaten. Suffice it to say that they were cut into strips of meat and cooked over open fires. On January 17, 1847, William Eddy, one of the members of the Forlorn Hope, reached a cabin in the California lowlands. He was barely alive. He asked for food and told the people in the cabin that there were six more alive behind him, but they were too weak to go any further. Out of the original 15 people in the Forlorn Hope, only seven made it out of the mountains. All five of the women in the Forlorn Hope survived. Only two of the men made it. The 12-year-old boy had died. Word spread in the Sacramento Valley about what was happening to the Donner Party up by Truckee Lake. But remember that there were hardly any men available because they were off fighting against the Mexicans in the war. And this was a time when nobody thought of sending women as a rescue party, even though the five women of the Forlorn Hope had made it all the way out of the mountains. In January 1847, the war was essentially over in California. This meant that men in California were leaving the military and going home. There would soon be men available for a rescue party. On February 5, 1847, a rescue party went into the mountains. A couple of days later, a second rescue party, led by James Reed, set off into the mountains. Reed had been trying to get men to go with him to go save his family and the rest of the Donner Party, and he finally got enough men and supplies to go. Back at Truckee Lake, people started dying in December from malnutrition and illness brought on by the severe cold and damp conditions. Snowstorms were common. Think about what it was like for the people at Truckee Lake. There was nothing to do all day but sit around shivering and starving. Their clothes were deteriorating. Obviously, this is a minor point compared to dying of starvation and exposure, but I'm sure everybody must have stunk badly. They had not bathed in months. The daylight hours were short because it was winter. And in the mountains, the amount of daylight is even shorter because the high peaks block out the sun. So if you were one of the people at Truckee Lake, you sat around watching the people around you die and wondering when it was going to be your turn. By February, they were out of food. Then, on February 19, the first rescue party arrived at Truckee Lake. They discovered several dead. There were dead bodies just lying in the snow. Some of those who were alive were barely hanging on and seemed that they could not be saved. At this point, none of the survivors at Truckee Lake had resorted to cannibalism. On February 22, the first rescue party, along with 17 of the survivors, started to head back to the Sacramento Valley. As the first relief party headed back to the Sacramento Valley, they met the second relief party headed by James Reed. By the time the second relief party arrived at Truckee Lake, 
more people had died. And remember how I told you that there had not been any cannibalism when the first relief party arrived? This was no longer true. By the time James Reed and the second relief party arrived at Truckee Lake, the survivors had begun to eat their comrades who had died. James Reed and the second relief party took as many of the survivors as they could and headed back over the mountains to the Sacramento Valley. But they got caught in a severe snowstorm and had to stay where they were in the mountains. Ten days later, the James Reed-led Second Relief Party was found by a third rescue party heading towards Truckee Lake. The group led by James Reed had resorted to cannibalism. The Second Relief Party had now somewhat recovered, and the weather was better, so they continued on their way to the California lowlands. When the third rescue party reached Truckee Lake, there were only seven people left alive. It's unclear, but it appears that three people did not go back with this third relief party. George Donner was very ill and could not make the journey through the mountains, and his wife, Tamson, refused to leave him. I've not been able to determine why the third person stayed behind. The fourth and final rescue party arrived at Truckee Lake in April 1847. They found only one person alive, a man named Louis Kiesberg. George Donner and Tamson Donner had both died. Louis Kiesberg admitted to eating Tamson Donner. On April 21, this last rescue party left Truckee Lake and headed over the mountains. On April 27, they reached safety out of the mountains. This was just over one year from when the Donners and the Reeds had left Springfield, Illinois on April 16, 1846. News of the Donner Party spread throughout the United States. Emigration to California plummeted, but only for a short time, because a year later, on January 24, 1848, a man named James Marshall discovered gold in a river in Northern California. The California gold rush was on. If you'd like to know more about that fascinating topic, I did an episode appropriately called the California Gold Rush. So what was the final death toll? The Donner Party left the main wagon train and started on their own through the Hastings Cutoff with 87 men, women, and children. Only 46 survived and reached the California lowlands. 41 members of the Donner Party had perished. There were five women, 22 men, and 14 children. Throughout this episode, I've been referring to Truckee Lake as the location where most of these horrors occurred. But don't look for Truckee Lake on the map. It's no longer called that. Because of the tremendous tragedy which occurred there, it has been renamed Donner Lake. That's it for today. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, reviews greatly help. It's easy to do. Scroll down the History Analyze show page, select a rating, hopefully five stars, and then tap Write a Review. If you are listening on Spotify or any other podcasts, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please subscribe to this podcast, and please like this and my other episodes. Also, please tell your friends, relatives, and coworkers. Word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for History Analyzed. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com, where you will find links to fun items for the history geeks. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.